where Johnny Cougar, John Mellencamp, he, um, he was singing some deeply theological lyrics in the early 80s, and he probably didn't realize it. Um, he had a song called The Authority Song. Some of you know this. I can probably name some of you by name who probably know this, know, know John's songs. But the main line of the chorus was, I fight authority. Does anybody want to finish it? Authority always wins. That's right. All right, good. You, you've, you've done me proud. Um, you teenagers, just Google it later. You can watch the YouTube video of music video or something like that. That's profoundly true. That, but he, but he's, not, he's not the only one in this fight against authority. In the heart of every sinner, there lurks this deep-seated re- rebelliousness, this deep-seated fight against authority in all of us. It's the infant who stiffens his body in anger when he doesn't get what he wants. It's the, it's the four-year-old with hands on his hips and protest and, and you know, biting his lip as he, as he stares down his much larger, much older father. It's the eight-year-old who refuses to do something that his teacher asks her to do. It's the teenager who confuses independence with rebelliousness. It's the worker who constantly pushes back against his boss, who hates to be told what to do. It's the old man who finds satisfaction and even boasts to his friends about cheating on his taxes for many, many, many years, sticking it to the man. We hate to be told what to do. And it, it could be traffic laws, it could be parking restrictions, it could be you know, the lady at the library telling us to be quiet. I mean, we just don't like being told what to do. We fight authority. We have to confess that, humbly confess that together. But that second part of the lyric is also true. Authority always wins. I mean, the biblical story, the biblical narrative begins with this, with this rebellion against God's authority. But there's this movement, this steady movement towards this moment when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Praise God, authority will win. And so it's, it's fitting that we're in this section of 1 Peter today. And in, in chapter 2, tomorrow is the day we remember with, and, and we give thanks for, for those who have died defending this great nation and, and, and uh, fighting for its causes and five days ago, we had the opportunity to cast a ballot electing, uh, or at least in the primary election, but, but in a step in the process of electing our governing authorities. And so it's appropriate that we are where we are in this letter, how Christians are to relate to government and the authority that it has over us. And so just quickly, we've got a lot of ground to cover, more than we've been covering most of these weeks. And so uh, we're going to do the best we can. But here's the kind of the structure of this passage. We're moving into a next sec- in, in another section of First Peter. There's this overarching command. You see it in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's the broad statement that's going to cover uh, everything down into chapter 3. Uh, um, and so then he gives these specific applications. Not exhaustive in all of the ways that this applies. But a representative kind of ways and ways in which this works out, and that we're subject to all kinds of human, every human institution for the Lord's sake. And then right in the middle of that, the hub of that whole section, uh, the anchor of it is Jesus Christ. His work, his, his, uh, his example and his substitution as we're going to see. And so that's, that's right in the center and it holds the whole passage together. And so let's just back up again. So the first thing, we see this simple command in that, in that overarching command, be subject to or submit to. It. In the Greek, it's a, it's a compound word, hupotasso. The hupo is the little preposition. It means under. And tasso is like to, to, to appoint, to, to place, to order. So it's, it's kind of like to, to place oneself under, to fall in line under. And so it was used in military um, in, in military terminology, to, to fall in line under rank, that kind of thing. And so this is, this is the idea of submission. Not in a forced way. He's, he's calling us, he's appealing us to do this. So it's not a forced way, but a willing way. Biblical submission is not forced submission. It's not just external, uh, you know, grin and <laughs> smile, but inside you're raging against the authority. No, that's not it. We're going to see it carries this tone of honor as well. So that's the... 
the, the simple commands. The, the scope of the command, you notice, is every human institution. Every human institution. Now, when you see institution, don't think that that simply means, well, we have to submit to the office, but not the person. I don't know what that really means and how that works out in life. That's kind of, a, I understand what you say when you say that, but he makes, he makes it clear. He's talking about emperors and governors and, and husbands and masters. And so it's not just generic offices or generic institutions. And, and you notice the scope again. It's every human institution. It's, and there's a lot of them. I mean, just stretches, stretches out to every authority in your life. And so, students, you, got, you need to line up under your teacher. Citizens, we need to line up under our elected officials, under law enforcement, under TSA agents. I've got to, I'm going to leave here in a little bit and fly to Texas and join the family. And so I, I just love the authority of the TSA. No, but I've I got to submit to that and do so before the Lord and honor uh, those agents. And so it's workers lining up under your boss. So all authority. So that's the scope. And then the sphere of that command it's for the Lord's sake. It's this distinctly Godward command. It's not for the sake of the authorities. It's not for the sake of emperors or governors or mayors or, or whatever. It's not for the sake of the community. It's not for the sake of your family. It's not for the sake of yourself. It's for the Lord's sake that you do this. And also, what that also shows is there's this direct connection to people in authority and God's ultimate authority. You can't say, well, I, I, I love God's authority, but I hate, I hate human authority. No. Human authority is this physical and visual, albeit very imperfect, the representation of the authority of God in your life. And you can't separate those. In every sphere of life, in government, family, church, workplace, God has established authority. And so this is this broad, overarching command. We must willingly submit to and honor the authorities that God has placed over us in every sphere of life. That's the, the broad command. And, and what we see as, we'll, as we walk through this passage, according to Peter, according to God, the authority, this authority is a blessing from God. It's a good thing. I realize that's alien to the way that most of us tend, tend to think. We live in a, in a very anti-authority culture. We look at authority like it's a hassle, like it's or an inconvenience, or, or a burden, or an obstacle. It's bondage, maybe even a curse. And so we recoil when we and and and, and resist when we hear words like submission. That's a dirty word in our world today. It sounds like inferiority to our ears. It sounds oppressive, and and so it, it wars against some of the highest cultural values of our day like self-expression and self-actualization and independence and, and, and being true to you, those kinds of things. We, we celebrate, we make, we make the Mavericks our heroes, the Moanas our heroes. So kids, just borrow a kid sometime and watch it. It's a good movie. It's, but but this is, the, this is the, what we, what's constantly pumped to us. But God says there is, there's actually greater joy and submitting to others for the Lord's sake than there ever would be if we could actualize every single desire we had. There's greater joy in that. I know that, again, that sounds counter to everything we hear around us. It's, every, it's counter to everything natural in us. It's true. Now, I realize you're probably already shifting your seats a little bit. This is not, it's not a hard passage to understand, but it's a hard passage to to. to uh, to come to grips with and to, to, to think the application of our own lives. We, 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 you're probably wanting to raise your hands and object. You may be silently asking questions or, uh, to me. And What about unjust authority? Or just what about incompetent authority? What do we do then? I, I know there's this tendency when we get into passages like this, we want to rush to all the exceptions. And we, and we want to think about the special cases and all the what if and the what about questions that, that come up. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those. But that's, I, don't want to, I don't want us to get distracted from the, the, the overarching command here. I just, I just want you to see that when Peter says be subject to, be submissive to the authority in your life, he sees it as a good thing. And if you get nothing else, just get that today. And one reason it's so good 
and we're going to see this, and it's going to be developed more next week. One of the reasons that, that, that doing this is so good is that it leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Him. It leads us down paths that Jesus Himself has already walked. We get to walk in His steps. It leads us ultimately to Jesus because we can't do this on our own. We have those fleshly passions that we talked about last week that war against our souls and we struggle to abstain from them. And so we can't do this on our own. So it leads us to Him because we need His grace and we need His help. And this is exactly what He's going to say in verses 21 to 25. We'll look at next week. But listen, I get it. I have the same gag reflex that you have when it comes to this. I resist, buck again against authority rather than submitting to it. I, this is a little illustration from my own life, see your wretched pastor. Um, I, last summer we were in, in Dallas, we were staying at my dad's house, they were in Colorado, but we were there we were during our sabbatical and so it was a free place to stay. My dad plays golf and he has a membership at the golf course there, they're a little town home that backs up to a golf course and so he said, oh you can go use the pool whenever you want to, you know, there's just got to give him this little number or whatever and you can... You can get into the pool. So we, we go up there, and, and we look like the Clampets, and this is kind of Dallas golf, you know, community. And, and we got, like, plastic grocery bags with our goggles and, you know, just sunscreen and stuff that we're carrying in here. And it's this, you know, really nice thing. You got, like, waiters walking around, you know, around the pool. And there's not a single person in the swimming pool. It's this massive pool, like Olympic-sized lap area and these deep diving. It has a big diving board, which you don't see anymore. And it's like three-story water slide thing. There's people sunbathing, but nobody's swimming. And yet there's like three lifeguards all around this pool that nobody's in. It's like it's just a backdrop for the sunbathers. That's what it felt like. It's a good selfie, you know, background kind of a thing. It's nice. But then we get there. I take the kids up there, and we jump in, and we're splashing around. And, and so, you know, right away, you know, one of the kids jumps off the diving board. I jump in after them, and Beep, beep, whistle. Can't do that. Got to wait till they get to the ladder. Okay, I think I know. I've been in a pool before. I know how this works. I know how to jump and not kill my kid. And so, then we do the water slide. And my kid's growing up the water slide, and we're trial out. Beep, beep. Can't do that. You got to wait till they go down before you can start climbing up the... You kidding me? It's like three stories tall. I mean, and it's, there's no way they're going to fall on your head. So, we get to the, you know, then we like throwing kids. Beep, beep. You know, no, can't do that. Everything we did, we, we got in trouble. I'm like, what is the point of this? There's, I'm thinking there were all attorneys that were part of this, this club or whatever. But So, um, so I, outwardly, I'm trying to be submissive. Sure thing. I mean, it's like a 16-year-old kids, too. They got like peach fuzz. I mean, they, these are, and here I am, a grown man. These are my kids. And, and I, but inwardly, I'm rebellious. Hey, who are you? Who do you think you are talking to me like that? No, listen, they're, they're, that, those are their rules. That's fine. I'm on their property. I need to submit to that. And so, but I'm just saying, that's the war that's in us. And that's just kind of a silly illustration. But that, I am like John Mellencamp. I fight authority. And so do you. So we need, we need to get this. And so that's the, that's his general overarching call. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so now for the next few paragraphs, he's going to apply that in a, a, a few spheres of authority. And so these are particular challenges that Peter's readers were facing then and that we still face today, as we're going to see. And so we're going to look at the first two today. Then Eric's going to preach next Sunday on that hub, the, the, the center section of Jesus, our example, our substitute. And then we're going to come back and pick up the remaining applications. But the first thing that we'll see, so we're going to look at governing authorities. We're going to look at this master-slave relationship. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. So first thing, submit for the Lord's sake to governing authorities. Now again, I know this is a challenge to us. I've spent a lot of hours with this text all week, probably more than I should for a single sermon, but my family was out of town, and so I, I've spent a lot of time in this. And, and it's been challenging to navigate through, again, not to understand what it's saying, but the connections, and there's so many scenarios that, that have popped up in my own head. But wherever you land on political issues, whatever the side of the aisle you tend to vote uh, on, whether you get animated about government and politics or whether you're sort of indifferent to it, this is a challenge to us. Let's look at verse 13 again. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So let's just stop there. So Peter says, 
When it comes to government, when it comes to laws, when it comes to policies that are put in place, when it comes to rulers and governors and senators and presidents and city officials and police officers and judges and courts and taxes and all of those things, the Christian first comes under that authority and submits to it. Don't don't miss that. The first thing you should think when you hear this is not, how do I get around this? How how can I justify these exceptions and and get out from under this? No, the first question should be, how can I submit to and obey this? So he's not saying we have to agree with everything that comes down. We won't. We don't have to. He's not saying we have to love it, to champion it, to support it. Everything that the government says and does, we can't. we, We won't and we can't, honestly, many times. But he is saying that our posture, how we speak... Our attitude, our tone of voice, how we think, what we post, our emotions, our demeanor, our posture towards government and those in authority over us should be one of submission, respect, and honor. That's the broad statement. So he's going to show us three things we need to believe, three things we need to know, three things we need to believe, if we're ever going to be able to submit to any authority um, government or otherwise. And so the first one is this, is that we've got to believe that God is the one who ordains governmental authority. He, it's his thing. Government is not people's idea. It's not man's idea. This is, it's first and foremost, God who ordained this. We've, we've already talked some about this in the introduction, but notice again in verse 13, we subject to ourselves to governmental authority for the Lord's sake. And in verse 15, he's going to say, talk about this is the will of God. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But all the rulers who are in power, all the authorities in your life, God is the one who put them there. So we've we got we to gotta know that. We've got to believe that, trust that. Laws, rulers, taxes, God is the one who's willing those things. So the good, the bad, the ugly, the unjust are all put in place by God. Now, Peter says this somewhat implicitly here, but Paul says this very explicitly in Romans 13. If you want to turn there, look at me, look at it with me, because if you don't believe what I'm about to read, and you want to look it up later, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. And we could read more, more verses here, but he says, let every person be subject to, that's the same exact word as we see in 1 Peter, be subject to the governing authorities. Now, you're ready for this. Some of you know this, but not read this before, it's maybe a little shock to the system. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So God is the one who appointed government. It's not designed by people. It's very popular among social scientists and and, uh, philosophers to think that this is government, the idea, the concept of government is man's idea. No! It's not the invention of man. It's God's design. His institution is the word here. The idea behind that is his creation. It's related to the word for create. It's God's creation. So if we're ever going to possibly submit willingly to government, even unjust government, we have to know and trust this about God. This is his doing. And Peter tells us that God's purpose for the government that he designed is good. They're sent, verse 14, by God to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. So the good intention for, of God in government is to restrain the wickedness that just would be unleashed from our human hearts if it wasn't the case. It's restraint of evil. It punishes evil, praises good. This is why I think it's a good thing when presidents call people to, into the White House and they have little photo ops and uphold somebody who's, who's made some noble sacrifice for our nation, whether a soldier or whether... Uh, a firefighter or something like that. When, when city officials, they name you know, roads after people who've really done a good service in the community. That's, that's part of the purpose of government. Now the question, of course, that nags us is what about unjust government? What about that? It sounds great to submit to good government when there are actually good laws in place and, and, and they're thoughtful and they're, and they're ethical and when those laws are enforced carefully and, and equitably... What about unjust government? Is this just kind of blind obeisance? We just got just to gotta bear it? Can't say anything? No. We'll come back to this in a moment. But again, I don't want you to wiggle out from under the command yet. 
Let me just say, the Bible only knows unjust governments. There is no other kind. Don't be deceived by that. All, all the governments in Scripture, when you, when, you, when you have encouragements like this in, in Egypt, in Babylon, the Assyrians, Nineveh, and in Rome, where this, this letter is being written in this context, they're all wicked and corrupt. I mean, Nero, who Peter has in mind here, he's the emperor that he's saying they need to submit to. He would eventually cut off the Apostle Paul's head and he would crucify Peter, many believe, upside down. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. I mean, so the Bible only knows unjust government. History only knows that. So some of you are students of our own nation's presidential history. And, 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 but for us, all the presidents that we know about, those that we've seen in our own lifetime, those that we've read about and, 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 uh, before we, we came along, I'm, if you went down the list, every one of those presidents would have done or said things that we didn't like or agree with. There's, there's no perfect one. I mean, even for individually... They supported policies we disagreed with. They, they offended us. They, some of them scared us. Some of, us, some of them let, let us down. But listen, none of them cut off the heads of Christians. None of them killed pastors for proclaiming the gospel. None of them declared themselves to be God and demanded our worship of them. I mean, not yet. But this is the environment that Peter is writing in and he's pastoring in and he's proclaiming the gospel in and he's still saying, submit to them. And, so, and listen, the church was able to thrive in the midst of all of that governmental opposition. They submitted and they, and they obeyed whenever they could. That was their default response. And they bled and they died at times suffering the consequences when they could not submit or obey. Because they looked past those emperors and past those kings to a God who is sovereign over all things, who, who appoints leaders and appoints governments and governing authorities, and they trusted Him. So if you, if you know this, you really can submit to any authority. You can yield to laws, even those laws that you don't particularly like or agree with. And that may be things like gun regulations and health care and immigration and traffic laws. and You can have a posture of submission under any government, whatever form, whatever the condition. You can pray for your leaders. You can respect their authority. You can wish for their good. You can seek to promote good in your nation. You can honor them, not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake. Again, at some point in our history, this may really hurt, and it does hurt many Many believers, most believers in the world today live under very oppressive uh, governments and regimes, unlike we live under. But there could be a time coming when the government will unleash all kinds of laws and penalties against the church, against proclaiming the gospel. I'm not trying to make a prediction or anything like that. I don't, I don't know that that's coming. I, but even if it happens, brothers and sisters, we'll be fine. The church will survive. And the church can flourish through that. If we trust that God is sovereign over all these things, then we can be submissive. We can flourish in the midst of that. They may kill us, but they can't hurt us. That's the great thing about being a believer. The real us. They can't hurt us. We, we may lose everything in this world, but Jesus is enough. And we have this hope of this future inheritance that's imperishable, and we're kept by the very power of God until we receive it. So this is, again, don't forget everything we've been looking at in First Peter so far. It all connects. You can't, you, this, these commands, they're, they're nonsensical if you don't understand what your identity is in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The first thing you've got to believe if you're going to possibly submit to governing authorities is you've got to believe that God is the one who ordains them. Second thing that Peter says we need to believe. We need to believe that God has freed us in the gospel to submit to governmental authority. So we think freedom and submission, they're antonyms to one another, but that's not the case. Look at verse 16 again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as free slaves. That's what he's saying. Live as free servants of God. He's reminding us that we're free. We're not slaves to the government. We're, 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 in fact, we're slaves. We're servants to God. And if you're a slave of God, then you're, you're free from everyone else. 
And so God in the gospel, he's freed us from every kind of earthly identity, from, from every hold on our lives. He's freed us. So now we've got to use that. We have this opportunity to use that freedom for good. Because we're, we're free in the gospel, we cannot, as he says, use our freedom to cover up evil. What does that mean? On this letter, he's, think of, again, think of all the amazing things that Peter has said about us as Christians, about the church, that we are God's elect, we are a privileged people, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Jesus was slain to ransom us and to set us free. We're living stones being made into a temple. We have this eternal hope in heaven that's waiting for us, and Jesus is going to come back for us. So we see all those realities. So we may read all that and be tempted to think something like, well, who cares about government then? I mean, the emperor has no hold on my life. I'm, I'm free from all of this. Who cares about laws that come down or taxes or about any of those things? We're free in Christ. That's what Peter's talking about here. That's using your freedom as a, as a, as a mask as to cover up evil. You're resisting and shunning government authority because you're free in Christ. It's using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So Peter says, saying instead, use your freedom to do good. Don't just demand your rights. Don't, don't rebel against the government. Don't live in constant protest. Don't constantly com- combat everything that comes down. And don't, also, don't cower in a hole somewhere hoping for the glory days of some era of, you know, U.S. politics to return, whatever president you think that was under. No, we, that's not how we respond. We, we do actually speak. In fact, we speak a lot. We speak up for the unborn, for the poor, for the widow, for the marginalized. We, we seek to do good, to promote justice. We, we long to promote good policies and good laws and to elect good leaders. I mean, in the context of our nation, as we have opportunities to vote, we, we love where God has placed us to do good. We love all that he's given us. I mean, there are, what a great nation we are privileged to live in, brothers and sisters. It's so easy for us to take it for, for granted. Again, this, this holiday weekend, it ought to arouse those thoughts of thankfulness to the Lord. This is an amazing place to live. It's a great place to be a Christian and to work for the advance of the gospel among the nations. And we should seek here where God has placed us to do good, to speak up, but to do so in a submissive, humble, gentle tone. And that's why Peter says what he does in verse 15. We skipped over that, but let's go back. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does he mean? Well, at this point in history, Christianity is a very new, it's just a little sprout. Except it's more like it's sprouting up everywhere. But, but it's this new movement and no, nobody really knows what to do with it. So if, if you're Rome or any other government in the world at the time, and this, this uh, you know, kind of new sect is just popping up everywhere, spreading like wildfire, and, and, and you have all this intel coming to you about them, what, what, do, you, what do you do? Well, you investigate, you interrogate, you have, this, you have this suspicion about them, about this group. And so you see this in Acts. You know, nobody really knows what to do with church. And so there are times when they're just, they just mock and they laugh at the church and they deride Christians. And there are times when they threaten them. And there are times when they kind of sort of join in with them, at least casually. There are times when people tried to worship the apostles. There, there are times when they imprisoned them and beat them and even killed them. But they, because they, they didn't fit into any category. They refused to worship Caesar. And, and they, 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 they would not do that. But they're still respectful and submissive and law-abiding. And they pay their taxes and they submit to regulations. And so no one quite knew what to do with them. And so there's all this suspicion. Are they a threat? Are they dangerous? What do, we, what do we do with them? And so into that, into that context, just keep that in mind, Peter says this. He says, what do you, be good citizens. Don't give them any reason to malign the gospel. Give them, give them no reason to say foolish and ignorant things about, about the gospel, this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Be submissive. Honor them. Don't be rebels. Actually, do good deeds that will silence them. That's, I think, the sense behind 
Verse 15. And so it's because we've been set free by the gospel. We are, we are not ultimately under the authority of emperors and governors, but that the, the authority of Christ in our life now frees us to do good and to have a submissive posture towards the government, to do good in our community and for our country. Just think in our own context. All around us, hatred and anger abounds. Fears abound. Mockery abounds. It's like American pastime when it comes into politics and government. Complaining abounds. We ought to show a better way. We, we don't fall in line with those things. You can be, you've been freed, you have been freed by the gospel to do good. You can speak and act in a way that's winsome and persuasive, in a way that promotes good and advances the gospel. This is, this is how. Don't, don't just fall in line with the you know, popular talk show hosts. Don't give, be given over to mockery. Don't fill up your social media feed with just venting of anger and hatred and criticism about everything. You can actually now honor the rulers that God has placed over you. And you can submit to them while doing good. And speaking good and using social media and using the voice that God has given you to, to work towards good things. And so show the world a different way because you've been freed up to do this by the gospel. You've got to believe that. All right, third, quickly. Believe that God alone is worthy of our ultimate allegiance. Right, it's just, I take this from verse 17. And I think verse 17, it just fits Peter. He is, he is a wise, studied man. But he is not kind of this brainy academic uh, theologian, kind of stuffy theologian. He's a fisherman that God turned into a fisher of men. And so now he's this pastor of, of the sheep. And so he writes with these very clear directions to these sheep. And so I just look at how verse 17 is. He says, four commands. Boom, 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 boom. Honor everyone. Treat everyone with respect. Love the brotherhood. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ with this particular kind of love. Fear God. Live every day in awe of His presence, of His authority, of your life. And then honor the emperor. Be thankful for government. Respect, honor your leaders. So this, this string of, of imperatives here, it seems to have a progression to it. That's, that's what I think you see. You see, honor everyone. And there's this narrowing of it to love for the church. And then there's this focus on fearing God who's at the center. And then he brings it back out to the kind of the point of the passage here. Honor the emperor. And, and going back to that heading. And so he's giving us the perspective we need. While he's supporting the need for believers to, to be subject to the emperor, he's also gently pushing back some and putting it in right perspective. You fear God. Honor the emperor. So you see these two allegiances at, at play here. It, it, two powers side by side, but they're, they're very different. One deserves your absolute trust and fear. The other one does not. One is ultimate. One is delegated. One is eternal. One is temporary. One is the creator. One is a created institution. So Peter's gently pushing back. You, you honor the emperor, but listen, you fear God. He's the ultimate authority. He's, he's, the emperor is nowhere close to the same level as God. You, you fear God. You trust in Him. You hope in Him. You revere Him. You, you worship Him above everything else as you honor, as you respect the emperor. He's only there because God has given Him power to be there. And so when it comes to Governmental authority, just bring this into our day, to Congress, to the Supreme Court, to laws. There are limits on how far we go in obedience and submission as God's people. We submit in every single way, except one. We do not submit, we do not obey when the state calls us in some, in some way to disobey what God has clearly said. We fear the Lord. We obey Him. That's, that's when we... With still with, a, I believe, a posture of honor, we push back and we resist and say, you know, I'll go this far, but not there. I, doubt, I can't do that. I must obey God and not man. 
as the apostles say. So listen, it may cost us, but again, Jesus will be enough. By the way, I know we tempted to take that statement and say, okay, well that's great, I can just wiggle out from under anything. No, you can't make the line wherever you want it to be here. The line is, has got to be clear. It's not determined by you know, your party platform. It's got to be determined by clearly revealed biblical truth. So you see examples in Scripture like Daniel and his friends who refuse to bow down to the statues of Nebuchadnezzar. You see the apostles preaching the gospel and saying, we must obey God rather than man. We suffer the consequences. And that's the part of their submission. But we, we, we just can't make it up. The line, the line needs to be clear. But this may happen from time to time for us. If it hurts, let it hurt. And if we suffer, then we suffer. And we look to our Savior again who is enough for us. Hear me, we, 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 are, we are and ought to be proud and thankful Americans. If you are an American and not a guest with us who's from another nation, we're honored to glad the church is international. But we are Christians first. And American second. And, th- and th- there's a massive gap when it comes to our worship and our hope and our trust. And so just a couple quick, qu- quick thoughts before we move to the second sermon. <laughs> second point and second application of this broad command. But I think this passage, it exposes two errors that we tend to be prone to. One, you can care too much about politics and government. You can wrongly place your hope in these things. And this text I think exposes that in us. For some of us. Politics, government is really about all that matters. Practically speaking. So you, we, can, we can constantly be scouring the internet. And watching television. And listening to talk radio. And listening to podcasts. And posting on social media. And, and, and you, get, you get so caught up in this. that Either you only surround yourself with people who agree with you. And you just kind of have this echo chamber. Or you are constantly at strife with people. Or maybe a blended combination of both. But for some of you, your hope, your joy, your peace, it rises and falls based upon what comes out of Washington, D.C. That's not good. If that's you, I I just beg you to, just with humility, look to Jesus. Let Let Him speak to you over this. Grapple with this today. Grapple with this this week. Grapple with this in the coming months. Let God help you if if there's a readjustment that's needed. But there's a second error. And you can others can care too little. Some some of you honestly don't care at all about government or politics or the like. You have no seeming concern about what happens in this country, in this community, whether it's local or national politics, and somehow that feels spiritual to you. But Peter won't allow that either, because what does he say? He says, do good. <laughs> As you submit, you, which is active, you do good. And you, you promote the good. You be good citizens. You think, you pray about issues about, and, and pray for your leaders. You care. You vote. You, you should, should be for our city, for our county, for our state, for our nation, for other nations. And so we're involved... <coughs> Excuse me, and 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 we should care. And so, just I think we probably can all need to be pulled in some direction by this passage. We all need to be taught. We all need some correction here. Second, all right, we move from submission to governmental authorities to this other relationship. And I'm going to say it this way, and then I'm going to qualify it. So, so it's the the second category: submit for the Lord's sake to workplace authorities. Now, some of you, all right, well, verse 18, look at it with me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Stop there. So Peter very specifically addresses this group of people he calls servants. Other translations, maybe version you're using, it translates this as slaves. Slaves made up a large percentage of the population was Peter, into which Peter's writing. Up to 50%, they guess. And therefore, the church would have been, may have had the same portion of their church as slaves. And they had slave masters in the churches. And we know that from other letters in the New Testament. Slavery, slavery was a deeply established 
widely accepted and commonly practiced part of Roman society. And he commands them to be submissive and respectful to their masters, even those who are unjust. And then he encourages them, say, so this is kind of the, this section, this is where he goes. So he, he gives us command, then he encourages them and he says, when you do that, this is a gracious and beautiful thing in the sight of God. Why? Why is it a good and beautiful thing? Because you're following in the path and steps of Jesus by choosing faithfulness to him over a pain-free life. So that's the progression as we see through this passage. So there's a, there's a lot to cover in a few minutes, and we can't possibly cover it all. I'm just going to kick over some rocks and then let Eric clean up all the messes next week. And so that's my plan this morning. So clock, you're, in my, you're on my team. Uh, so, but but I, I think we need to briefly address the fact that, again, he's talking to slaves and calling them to submit to their masters. Paul says the same thing basically in Ephesians and in Colossians. And so we need to understand how the Bible addresses slavery, in part to interpret this particular passage of Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. But I think also because we live in a nation that was built upon the back of the horrific slave trade and the subjugation of an entire race of people for hundreds of years. That's a, that's a reality of our history. And, so, and this atrocity has shaped our nation. It has shaped us in powerful ways. And, and if that's not enough, this text and others like it were used to promote, to propagate, and to spiritualize the practice of New World slavery. And so we need to understand what Peter's saying, and we also need to understand what he's not saying. Now, I again, this is, this is a big topic, and, and it's an important one for us to think, not because it's... it's you know the application is so direct in our context today, but because this is a this is a type of passage that's often used to discredit the Bible, and so we need to think about these things and and what's being said and what's not being said. I preached on this a few years ago when we were going through Ephesians, maybe several years ago now. I if you would like more information, if you got questions after we're done today, I I think we'd probably find the audio for that and I let you listen to that. I'm not saying it's it's exhaustive either, but if you've got things, I can send you my notes or something like that. But so just a little disclaimer, if Eric doesn't clean up all the messes next week. Um, so one thing we need to see, though, I think it is important to see, and this isn't the answer to everything, but, it, but it's important to see that the slaveries the apostles were speaking into was very different from the slavery that you and I are thinking of. So maybe at first glance, you, you look at this passage, and it might seem to, and this is how some people you know, that love to just rip the Bible up, they, they say this, and it could seem like at, at worst it's promoting, and at best it's sort of apathetic towards the plight of the enslaved. Even, again, new world slavery that's part of our nation's past. But let me make it clear. According to the Word of God, the same Bible, the practice of kidnapping, hunting down, kidnapping, and trafficking human beings, uh, an entire race, is damnable and unsupportable by Scripture. And again, I'll come back to that. But, but listen to one description of the differences between slavery then and slavery in America. This is Dr. Murray J. Harris. He wrote a, a good book. on. It's called Slaves, Slave of Christ. <laughs> he says this, and I know this is a, this is a kind of a weighty paragraph, I'll read it slowly and listen. Here's what distinguished Greco-Roman slavery from New World slavery. So here it is, it gives seven things. First, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. So it's not like you say, oh, there's a slave. Second, they were sometimes more educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Not all of them, but there were doctors and there were, there were professionals uh, in the slaves. And some were agrarian and they were just workers in the field and, and worked very hard. Third, some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic and social advantage. Again, very different from what we've known in this nation. Fourth, they could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 or so years of service or by age 30 at the latest. That was the most, normally by age 30 you would be free. Fifth, they were not denied the rights of public assembly 
and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. Sixth, they could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. And then seventh, their natural inferiority was not assumed. Even in the church, it wasn't like, uh, okay, slaves and masters, and they said in you know, different sections and were regarded differently. That was not the case. So he goes on to say, that he talks about this was more like a servant class of workers, or house servants. And it's in this context that most people would put this passage in there with husbands and wives. It's part of the household code. And so it's very, very different from the race-based, perpetual, chattel slavery that is part of our own nation's history, and which is a real blight on this nation. So that kind of kidnapping, trafficking of Africans, it cannot be justified by Scripture. And you can't look to Scripture to support it or to regulate it. So, so that's what defined, though, the slavery that Paul and Peter had in mind when they wrote these things. So let me say... Also, although some features make slavery look better back then than, than the practice of slavery in the New World, we shouldn't see it as humane or a morally justifiable economic system. I don't think we can. It still involved the coercive ownership of human beings. They were treated as property, thought to be property. And Paul made it very clear that freedom is better than slavery. He said in 1 Corinthians 7, tell slaves, hey, if you can get your freedom, get it. You should. So, again, there's so much more that can, should, probably needs to be said about this. We don't have time. And, I, again, I realize this raises a bunch of questions. You can, you can ask those of me later. But I know the knee-jerk response when coming to these slave master uh, texts is to rush right past it and maybe with a sentence or two, and then immediately apply it to the employer-employee relationship. And we can't do that hastily or carelessly. I'm, there's, there's not a one-to-one comparison. But I do think that there is a proper application, and maybe closer than other spheres of authority that we know. Uh, and so there's a proper, proper application in that way in our lives. So these verses can and should be applied to other forms of socioeconomic authority structures. And one of those, obviously, that is true for us is the workplace. I mean, it could be others, military, uh, you know, that, that type of, of, of structure. But clearly, as an employee today, you have far more freedom than those first century slaves had. You can quit your job if you want to. Um, they could not. So if, if Peter calls them to submit to their masters, and this is my point, how much more then should we whose bosses have less authority than their masters had over them, how much more should we follow and apply this command in that way? So with that in mind, that long disclaimer, let me say just three statements here as we walk through this, these few verses. First, the fairness of workplace authorities is not guaranteed. The fairness of workplace authorities is not guaranteed. Verse 18, subjects be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So saying, Brothers and sisters, you just say to us, again, making this connection, we, you, should, you should be submissive with all respect to those in authority over you in whatever sphere of life, but including the workplace, your bosses, your, your managers, your supervisors, those who treat you fairly, those who, who love you, those who are for you, but even those who are maybe harsh towards you, thoughtless and self-serving and, and incompetent. So again, maybe your mind is going to extreme situations right now and you're thinking of times when this could be used to justify um, and encourage even abuse. That's certainly not what the Bible is advocating. And there are these, there's kind of two, two uh, prongs here. There's one, there's this general command to submit. And then we're going to see that we're to do good no matter what. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But as, as you think of that, as you wrestle with this, don't think that all issues at work are matters of morality. Um, there, there are better and worse ways of doing things. You've seen this, I'm sure. You, you, may, you may think that the way your boss structures the office, uh, the way he communicates, the way he handles meetings, the way he, he or she sets expectations or makes decisions is, is unhelpful. And you can think that your boss is just bad at his or her job. And you, you can think that. 
And you can ask questions and you can make suggestions and you can advocate for change in a respectful and honoring and submissive way. But if your boss decides, you know, forget that, I'm going this way anyway, and then you need to honor God. If it's not a moral issue, you need to honor God by submitting to their authority and, and respecting them. That's, that's the general aim. Submit to this authority over you. Then he says, we do good. Verse 19, look at there with me. For this is a gracious thing. Interesting. It's a gracious thing. When mindful of God, again, notice the Godwardness of this, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So I, I just say this. State it this way. The grace of God is for our encouragement when treated unjustly. There's this interesting nuance that Peter gives to these servants and to us. If you're, if, if you're being subject to your boss and doing everything he or she says, why in the world would we expect to be treated anything other than with appreciation? And Why would there be a cause for suffering? But he says, he's, he's saying that there will be times when you will have to do good and it will go against what your boss wants. And it will cause him or her to be unhappy and you may suffer their wrath because of it. And so you're valuing something higher than your boss's authority, ultimately. There's times. You're submitting to what God's word says is good and right. And even when that brings the uh, unjust response from your boss. So God is in honor when, when you use his name to promote your own personal agenda at work and then treat yourself like you're some kind of martyr. That's not what he's saying. He said, that's, that's no credit to you. He's saying, if you're going to get in trouble, if you're going to get chewed out, if you're going to get disciplined, if you're, even if you're going to get fired, let it be over doing good, and doing good in terms of how God defines it. Not for sin, not for doing a bad job. Let it be because you refuse to cheat or break laws the way your boss suggests you should. Let it be because you're standing up for somebody who's being harassed or bullied. Let it be over doing good for the Lord's sake. And when that happens, that's a gracious thing in God's sight. So just two questions. Where, where do you need to grow in submission? And where do you need to grow in doing good? Where do you need to be more respectful and submissive to those that God has placed in authority over you? Is there someone you even need to apologize to this week? A boss, a supervisor. And where do you need to do good? Where are you scared to do good at work because you know what it will cost you? Are you, or are you scared because you've already done things that aren't good, and by owning up to those things, you, that cost may be high? Well, it's better to live with a clear conscience than, than to sear it and keep making money. So Peter says, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And when we do this, what we see is we follow the path of Jesus. And this is the next thing. The submissive suffering of Jesus is our pattern. Verse 20, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus has already blazed this trail, the path of submission and confidence of God and suffering and justice for doing good. And you think, we think this is hard for us. How in the world was Jesus able to do this? I mean, he's Jesus. He's not, he's not us. But you think about it. He's a maker of all things. He has all authority. If there's anyone who should be served by the world, it should be him. And we know how it, we know how it feels just in the human realm when somebody who's really under authority of us doesn't treat us with respect. That's, oh, that'll really grate on us. How does Jesus, the one who has all the authority in heaven and on earth from all eternity, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, how does he bless those who revile him? How does he not threaten those who harm him? How does he keep doing good even when it costs him his everything? Well, Peter tells us the root of his power to endure suffering and injustice in verse 23. He says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As these things are happening, as he's being reviled, as he's suffering, as he's, he's actively entrusting himself. He's believing in God saying, God is going to judge justly. He will not forget. He sees. He is with me. Jesus isn't a pushover. 
He's not unconcerned with injustice. And, and he's not secretly growing bitter inside against all the people and taking names. Well, I'll just show you one day of those who are mistreating him. That's not it. Why? Because he, he knows God loves him. He knows God is with him. He, he knows he's trusting God and God will vindicate him in the proper time. Philippians 2 is a very familiar passage if you've been around the church and in any church context. But just think about this familiar passage in light of this passage that we've been looking at. Philippians 2, familiar words to us, but listen through this lens. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now note the next phrase. Taking the form of a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he trusted him who judges justly. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Listen, I fight authority. So do you. Authority always wins. Can you confess to God that you don't always love authority? Maybe that's where we need to start. Just Maybe that's the response. Is God, I, I, I confess it. I don't. I, there are places in my life where I just want my own way and that's it. I want to be supreme. I, I don't love your wisdom, your ways, your commands in my life. And therefore I don't love the authorities that you place over me. You... I don't love the way your authority, God, is exercised in the human authorities in my life. You say, just, Father, I, I need your help. Forgive me. Help me. There's still inside me this heart of a rebel. And you, and you, and you need to see where your hope is to be found. If, that, if you can get to that place, say, where then is hope? Well, it's found in Jesus, which is right where Peter's going. He submitted himself to his father's authority. And in submitting himself to his father's authority, he submitted himself to human authority. Even human injustice, being will, uh, willing to be wrongly condemned by people he made. Willing to be tortured. Willing to have the vilest of human authorities treat him unjustly. And he did all this so that through his submission, we might be redeemed and transformed and then therefore can submit to all authority. For his sake. We look to him. Let's close with these words. That we'll see next week. And the core of this whole passage. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered. For you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. None of us can say that. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. We can't claim that. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we need a lot of help to think through this. Father, I pray that whatever's been said, whatever's been heard, um, that you would use this to give us clarity and peace about these things. To trust that wherever we land on these things, Lord, that you're with us, that Jesus, you submitted yourself to the most wicked government, the most unjust charges and accusations were made against you, and yet you did this for the joy that was set before you. You endured the cross, you despised the shame, and you were resurrected to God's right hand. And, and so, Jesus, we look to you. You are our king. Our allegiance, our trust, our worship is to you. And Lord, though, as we've been, as we've been redeemed and transformed by you, I pray that we would seek to promote good and and most of all, to advance your gospel in this world. We know and, and, and we know that every kingdom will fall, but yours will stand. Yours is eternal. And you're the one that is sovereign over all government. 
And you rule the kingdom of man and, and you set, it, set, it, set over it the lowliest of people at times. And we scratch our heads, but, we, but help us, Lord, to trust that you are sovereign. Help us to trust that we are free because of the gospel. Help us to trust that we can fear and revere you above all things. Help us, Lord. Comfort us. Stir us up. Redirect our hopes and joys so that they're more squarely set upon your Son. Show us what it means to be a church that's for our city, for the nations, for the nations, so that we long to see your Son worshipped above all things. Give us help to live out what you've said to us in this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.